It's a rare gift to feel really seen, isn't it? Like when you've spent your life feeling like the world isn't quite made for you, maybe you hate being asked to pick just one job and stick with it forever, or your family thinks of you as a lost cause, or your resume looks like a leaf floating in the wind, and your friends question whether you'll ever pull yourself together and be a functional member of society, or perhaps all of the above, it can feel like a real miracle when someone shows up and says, you know what, your path is not only normal, but deeply needed. That might explain the emotional response that David Epstein continues to receive for his second book range like a love letter to generalists backed by mounds of scientific data, Range makes the case that delayed selection is actually better for development. Because when you sample many different things, taking your time to find what really suits you, you might spend years looking lazy or directionless from the outside, but there's a good chance you'll find greater satisfaction when you finally find your thing. In fact, in combining all of your varied experiences, you might also fill a unique niche in the world, one that no one else has ever even considered. And hearing all of that, when I read range made me feel so seen that I cried multiple times before getting even 20 pages in. My name is Brandy. I'm your overly emotional host. And this is a show called this plus that about connecting the seemingly unconnectable and why it matters. In today's conversation, I talk with David Epstein about the intersections of inefficiency plus joy. Because while the world might see your long process as very inefficient, a hated behavior in an industrialized world, and while you might feel like you're behind everyone else around you or too late to do what you came here to do, David is going to help you, like he did for me, realize that you're in exactly the right place. And in this conversation, we also talk about Vincent van Gogh, who didn't come into painting until very late in life after years of trying many, many different things and often seeming like a failure. The first time that David realized that normalizing life as a generalist might be incredibly cathartic and why he thinks range continues to elicit such an emotional response, his own path as a generalist and how having average skills in one domain and then applying them to something seemingly unrelated suddenly made him very unique, how switching so many jobs in your life can be seen as inefficient, but often leads you to a better match fit, as I mentioned. How humans are actually more suited to late blooming than any other organism. That was so surprising for me to hear. I love that. How, um, also how David practices inefficiency to keep himself joyful and curious. And the people currently inspiring David when it comes to connecting the seemingly unconnectable. David is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, of course, Range, and another book called The Sports Gene. He was previously an investigative reporter at ProPublica, where his work spanned from drug cartels to poorer practices in scientific research. Prior to that, he was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated. He has master's degrees in environmental science and journalism, and has lived aboard a ship in the Pacific Ocean and in a tent in the Arctic. His TED Talks have been viewed more than 10 million times. I'm telling y'all, he's just like the king of generalists. And it's just such an honor to be in conversation with him. A few things of note, lastly, before we hop into the conversation, 
At one point, David mentions that I have one of the first copies of the paperback edition of Range. It's because he graciously sent me a copy after I gushed about it on Twitter, telling everybody that I'd cried a few times before hitting like page 15 or something. And then stay tuned for an Easter egg at the very end after the official credits, because while the tape was still rolling, we had a really lovely exchange about the joy and surprise of getting to talk to people you look up to and how becoming a writer was a better way to satisfy David's scientific curiosity more than becoming a scientist. (laughs) And I just love it because everything always seems to get better when folks think they're off the air. So enjoy that little nugget at the end. Here's the conversation on the connections of inefficiency plus joy. When people sign up for your newsletter, you point them to a few resources. And one of them is this archive online that's basically every letter that Vincent van Gogh ever wrote or received, which is kind of amazing. And in one of them, in like 1880, he's writing to his brother Theo, and he says this. And now, for as much as five years, perhaps, I don't know exactly, I've been more or less without a position, wandering hither and thither, Now you say, from such and such a time, you've been going downhill. You've faded away. You've done nothing. Is that entirely true? It's true that sometimes I've earned my crust of bread. Sometimes some friend has given me it as a favor. I've lived as best I could, better or worse, as things went. It's true that I lost several people's trust. It's true that my financial affairs are in a sorry state. It's true that the future's not a little dark. It's true that I could have done better. It's true that just in terms of earning my living, I've lost time. It's true that my studies themselves are in rather a sorry and disheartening state, and that I lack more, infinitely more, than I have. But is that called going downhill? And is that called doing nothing? So you wrote a book, of course, called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. And in so many of the interviews that you've done, online talking about the book or not online, but you know, ones that you've done online or Mm -hmm. otherwise, Mm -hmm. when you're being interviewed about the book, people seem to really latch on to their own story that resonates. Mm -hmm. Mine was probably Van Gogh. I loved hearing that story. Uh, Can you, for folks who are listening, tell a little bit of that story to open us up? Sure. And that, that letter you picked is from a period basically before he had discovered himself as a painter as an artist, right? And he had gone through this incredible period where um, he was sort of bouncing from personal experiment to personal experiment. He was an incredibly hard worker, by the way, and everything he did, like everywhere where peers and colleagues of his left kind of records or recollections of him, it was about how hard he worked. And this was as a, as a student at first. And then he worked as a teacher. He worked as an art dealer for a little while because his, his uncle owned a very prominent uh, art dealership. Um, he worked as a bookseller at a certain point. That was one of my favorites because his his colleagues remembered that there was a the store flooded and he basically saved the inventory by just like tirelessly carrying out armful after armful of book to save the store. Um, he trained to be uh, a pastor like his father. That didn't really work out. And then a preacher. And it was for for one reason or another, all of these experiments never really worked. Whether it didn't fit with his personality, or uh, you know, in the case of training to be a pastor, he just like wasn't. He wasn't picking up Latin and Greek, really. Uh, he even made a hat where he would put candles on it so that he could study in the dark because he said, like, my advantage is going to be that I will keep studying when other people are sleeping. Um, and so it wasn't for lack of of effort. 
he just wasn't wasn't picking some of these things up very well and and you can see it in his letters i mean one of the reasons like you said when people sign up for the newsletter that that's one of the resources i suggest is because to me not only was he a beautiful writer uh, so they're just like literary value of the letters but it's like this travel log of i think like one of the great you know real time looks at a creative transformation where Van Gogh is bouncing mm. from career to career. He often writes his parents and some of the letters to his parents, he'll say, you know, now I got a teaching job or whatever. You never have to worry about me again. I found my thing. It's going great. And then like months later, it's like a complete spectacular flame out to the point where in his late twenties, you know, he's, he's approaching, he's approaching becoming 30 basically. And he is at this point moved out uh, to the coal country, essentially to to be like an unlicensed preacher and Sunday school teacher for coal workers and their families. And he's given away all of his clothes and all of his possessions. He arrives just after there was this huge mine explosion. And, and, and this is where he thrives because he's, he's so ready to like work hard that he, you know, stays up all night attending to families and things like that. But then when things return to normal, again, he's flaming out. Like he's not that great at teaching. Like the kids kind of don't really respect him. And so he's, he's nearing the age of 30. He's given away all of his possessions He's got really no accomplishments and no achievements to his name. And the one thing he can think to do is kind of document the life of these coal miners that he sees around him. And, you know, in, in a nutshell, I'm, I'm kind of compressing some things here, but he picks up a book called The Guide to the ABCs of Drawing that's written for kids. And he starts drawing mm -hmm. the life that he sees around him um, and realizes that that there's something there. You know, his, his early drawings look awkward, but he's compelled to do it and, and he's improving and this starts this series of um, artistic experiments that that end with him, just like he did with other jobs of saying like, watercolors is gonna be the thing. This is where I'm gonna make my mark. And then it turns out his hand is not very steady. And so like that doesn't work out at all. And eventually it leads him to this, this very unique style of painting where he alone kind of not only succeeds, but changes the field. Um, and every, everything most people have seen of Van Gogh is like in the last like two or three years of his life, basically, where he sort of merges all these artistic experiments and has this total creative explosion. And it's not true, by the way, that he didn't, he didn't become prominent while he was alive. There was actually, hmm. he, he, some of his art was, was in an exhibition where Monet said he was like the class of the exhibition. And there was this like ecstatic review written of his work, but you know, people didn't go viral as quickly back then. And this was like very <laughs> shortly before he died. Um, so there was, you know, the beginning and, and he sort of shunned it. He said, no, 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 I'm, I'm just beginning. Like this attention is not, not good. And, but, but that was coming at the, at, at the end of his life. But it was just this story. The reason I used his story was because I thought it was representative of, um, might almost sound silly, but of, of research that looked at how people find what economists call match quality, the degree of mm -hmm. fit between their interests and abilities and the work that they do, which turns out to be really important for performance, really important for sense of fulfillment and it turns out a good way to do it is to sort of, you know, expand your roster of experiences and try to gain insight into what you're good and bad at and what you're interested in and not and, and pivot and pivot and pivot. But I think it goes against some of our intuition to like pick and stick, essentially. Right. And and I want to talk more about match quality in a second, but I, I just... There's so much of that story, of course, that resonates with me, not just reading it in the book, but then going and reading that letter in those archives to his brother, the you know, sort of pleading to his family and trying to explain to the, the sort of public constant, oh, just kidding, 
You know, I think the like you try one thing and you announce it publicly, you try to do that thing and then you decide to to zig. Yeah. And and I think then also this like internal feeling that next time you announce something or when you find the thing, you know, like he found painting that people aren't going to take you seriously. Like I have this constant like if I actually decide to zig and zag again, will people it's like crying wolf. I have this like fear. Totally that people won't take any of my projects seriously because I'll never commit to something. Yeah. And, and I think that that resonation uh, or the resonance that I think that happens there, right? I mean, I, I, the way we sort of connected after I read range was that I saw this uh, Twitter thread online where someone was talking about the idea of nonlinear careers and uh, generalists sort of, um, you know, in that way. And it was this massive thread of responses. I feel like anytime I run across someone who says something like normalize a nonlinear career path or, you know, experimenting with your, your life or what have you, there's just this insane emotional outpouring from people. Um, why do you, why do you think that's so pervasive and that there's such an emotional response. Cause I think you had the same response to your book overall, right? It is. Sorry. I'm just taking a note here. So I remember to bring something up. Um, yeah. the, you know, what, what you mentioned actually gets at part of how I decided to even do the book in the first place, which mm-hmm. was some of the book came out of me criticizing the work that underlies the so-called 10,000 hours rule. Or right. Whatever. Malcolm and, Gladwell. Yep. And, and specific, and then he and I like got in these public debates on it that are on YouTube and, mm-hmm. And that we were talking primarily about sports in that area, because that's sort of a prominent area where the 10,000 hours rule had been applied. But then I got invited by uh, the Pat Tillman Foundation, which is a, a foundation that is named for the late NFL player who left in the middle of his career to join the army and was killed in Afghanistan. And the foundation gives scholarships to military spouses, soldiers, and veterans who are doing career development, often career changing, you know, if they're recently mm-hmm. out of the service. And a friend of mine, I ran track and field in college, and one of my training partners was a Tillman scholar. He was selected for it, and he invited me to to speak to like a small group of these Tillman scholars one year. And I go, and I'm like, "What am I going to talk about?" But I had been interested in this specialization in sports stuff. I'm like, "But you know, maybe I should look outside of sports, just for a little bit of data to tack on, since they're sort of career changing." So I go and I talk a lot about like sports development, and then the last ten minutes, I say, "And by the way, I've been finding some stuff in other areas." outside of the sports world. And they were like, it was like such clear catharsis. You know, it was like 15 people in the room, you know, a bunch of them were like former Navy SEALs and all this stuff. And and almost every person came up after to tell their story and saying like, I've felt like I'm so behind, maybe I'm not. And these were people who had these incredible experiences that they could not have accumulated in any other way. And, and of course now, this was some years ago, now those experiences where they were behind in some ways getting into professional world have leapfrogged most of their peers because they had these, these, you know, kind of inimitable experiences, um, that cued something in my mind that said like, oh, this kind of self-consciousness that I myself have felt about my career swerves is really pervasive, even in these people who are like the highest achievers objectively. And so I started to, to wonder if there was something that was normalized in practice, career zigzagging, but not normalized sort of in our cultural thinking. And so I'd start to come across this data, like LinkedIn gave me some data that they did analysis of the half million members of theirs. And it showed that 
the strongest predictor of who would go on to become an executive was the number of different job functions someone had worked across. And yet I would argue their product might militate against people wanting to take that career path. And yet it's still mm -hmm. jumping out of their data, you know, in this like, uh, this research from MIT and the U.S. Census Bureau that found that the average age of a founder of a fast-growing tech startup on the day of founding was 45. I was at, I gave a talk at some like group of people who pay to come together and talk about investing in startups and, mm -hmm. and they guessed 25, right? And the answer is 45. So I think in fact, this, this professional swerving and sort of later development and accumulation of experiences has become normalized in, in fact but our but we still tell people that it's like the exception when it when it is actually the norm and so i think there's a lot of uh kind of kind of public encouragement and even catharsis to be done when people start sharing these stories so that we can realize that this actually has become the norm now even if we're so so you know maybe we should facilitate people feeling good about uh this path as opposed to forcing them to feel self-conscious while while doing it yeah feeling so terrible uh, so you mentioned, a, you know, part of this really was you, uh, your own journey yeah. of zigzagging and your career. Me search as the, <laughs> as scientists like to say. Yeah, exactly. So, because I was going to ask like beyond the interaction with Malcolm Gladwell and all those things, like what actually made this, uh, you know, really personal for you and your own story? Because I know, so part of what I love when I was looking at like all the things that you've actually, all these varied things that you've done in your life, both of us actually wanted to be an astronaut at some point. All right. So a lot of my story was, you know, growing up as an artist and at like 35 or 36, I was listening to a podcast of a NASA astronaut. And I sort of had a moment while I was like cooking in my kitchen, like, why didn't I ever consider this and mm. realize that at some point my family had this, or for a lot of my life, my family had this story that, um, you know, my dad and I were the creatives of the family. Mm. And so like the sciences weren't really for us. And I was not really that good at math or science in my life, or at least in classes. And I've said this in other interviews, but basically you had someone at some point later in life go like, you weren't bad at math. You just had probably not very good teachers. And so there was a moment, like actually the beginning of what led me here to a conversation like this was this sort of interjection of a thought that was like, what if at 36, I could become an astronaut? And so I started sort of exploring that path and, you know, it zig and zagged me elsewhere, but was still an interesting exploration. But so you started out by wanting to go to the air force to be yeah. a test pilot yeah. to become an astronaut. Then you fall in love with geology by taking sort of like a random class. And yeah. then you take geology and astronomy to get into research yeah. You decided to do synthesis work because you realized that you could easily get into such a narrow path in yeah. that, that you, uh, you could easily start to like you, you would do work alongside other disciplines, but you wouldn't necessarily be able to pull in some of that yeah. knowledge that other people were researching. Right. And so then eventually in journalism at Sports Illustrated, you realize that all of this has basically led you to a point where you have sort of this unique perspective, which is this scientific data driven view of the sports world. Right. So yeah. then you became this, the yeah. youngest senior writer there quickly because you took on sort of these odd skills and applied them where you were at. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But also like in all of this jumping around, was your own family like, did they think of you as lazy or directionless? And, you know, did you have to do this sort of pleading like Van Gogh did with his family? Um, that was a better summary of my career path than I could have done in that amount of time. So I just want to commend you for obviously 
having, you know, gone through more of my interviews than anyone, but like my sister should ever do. So <laughs> I did watch um, a lot of interviews. Well, well done. Uh, it's, <laughs> Thank you can, you. it's very easy to tell who's like really done their homework. You know, when you do the interviews, you have obviously really done your homework. Um, uh, so by the way, just before I answer that question, when you mentioned in your family, the idea was there's sort of the, you know, the art people separate from the science mm-hmm. people. I don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't blame anyone for that. What, what, what's sometimes been called the two cultures. Um, mm. and, th- but you know, it's notable that like Nobel laureates are, you know, as I mentioned in range, like 22 times more likely to have an art serious artistic hobby outside of their work. And it often comes around and informs their work. And so mm-hmm. I think that that divide between the arts and sciences, um, we should, you know, like d- disciplinary divides are necessary evil for making the world comprehensible, but somebody's got to sure. put the world back together again. Um, yeah. And so anyway, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that, you know, we all, we all kind of deal with that artificial divide, but yeah, well, really quickly, cause I, I think you'll launch into the answer to my question, but I, I actually, there's another interview that I've done with a quantum physicist who's also a poet and it will probably come out online after the one with you, but I start that interview with a quote for him. That's your quote about that exact thing about scientists and Nobel Nobel laureates and how a good majority of them are folks who have dabbled in other things. Tinkered is the word you use, I think. Tinkerers. Um, That's really neat. I'll definitely look out for that and share it. Um, So my family, yeah, you, you, I think I was, when I was like 16, I was sure I was going to go. I I almost went to the Air Force Academy. I got the congressional recommendation, all of that stuff. Um, but I sort of realized my interests were expanding and, and like you said, not to go back over my career stuff, but when I got to sports illustrated, I was a temp fact checker there. And I pretty soon realized, like you said, that it was these, and, and I, I did not realize at the time that my science background, initially, I didn't realize that my science background was going to be my strength. I sort of thought, okay, I was in grad school, you know, I was living in a tent in the Arctic training to be a scientist. I learned that's not the path I wanted to follow. That's a good, important thing to know but kind of it was time wasted. And so when I got there as a temp fact checker, I was like five, six years older than the people that I was doing, you know, lower level work for. But, but pretty soon I realized that this, like I was at average science skills, you know, among other scientists, but then you take those like average Mm -hmm. skills among scientists, you move them to a sports magazine and suddenly you're something super special. You know, suddenly you're like the Nobel prize winning scientist group. Yeah. And I realized once I realized I started doing that sort of thing more consciously saying like, what skills do I have that are pretty normal in this milieu of people around me right now that I can take somewhere where they'll be seen as really special. And that's kind of been every pivot I've made since then. And as far as my, my parents, you know, they really, I did not have to do the Van Gogh of convincing them. I was much more, I would say that when it came to career progression stuff, I was much more high strung than my parents for sure. Um, so like I was sort of that same Van Gogh, like a level of drive that Van Gogh also had. Yeah. It, 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 his, the way he approached it resonates with me because I've sort of talked to myself that way. Like he has this one letter that I, that I loved that I excerpted where he talks about, you know, knowing he has this drive, he can, he can work so hard. He's so passionate. He's so sensitive. You know, he's, he's observant. Again, some of his writing is just truly beautiful. And he, he writes this letter where he likens himself to to a bird that's in a cage in spring. And he, he sees other birds flying by and knows that he's supposed to do something, that there's something within him he's being called to do, but he doesn't know what it is. You know, obviously in this case, it's migrating, but the bird's in a cage, so it doesn't know. So he says, he's just like a bird. He keeps banging his head against the cage saying, there's something within me. What is it? And sort of searching for it. 
And that I really resonated with because I also would bounce around things and work really, really hard. Like work, work, work ethic was not, was not a problem. If anything, I would say like learning to sort of put more emphasis on recovery was, is probably something I had to learn, um, as, as I became more mature. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, but it was that sort of looking for where do I fit? You know, I had interests in science, obviously I had interest in sports, had interest in the arts. And it wasn't really until I started to realize that I could like merge some of these things in interesting ways that I started to realize there's a place for me to fit. So there was never the pressure for my parents. I mean, I remember like if I wouldn't do as well on some math test or something at school as I wanted, I would like intercept it in the, you know, when they used to like send some grades home, I, I would intercept it in the mail before my parents would even see it. And they never really said anything to me about that. I'm sure they realized it was happening because like other parents were getting them. So I think uh -huh. they they probably realized that I was my own. Like if anything, you know, some people need to be managed, I think, to be more <laughs> critical maybe of their performance. And other people, I think, need to be managed to be less critical of their own performance. And I was probably in that 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 latter category. And I think either they were just sort of more laid back about it or or maybe they realized that and realized that like, the external pressure wasn't needed basically. So, um, had that advantage over Van Gogh. Yeah. I, I think that, well, first that, that bird in the cage is actually part of that same letter that I, I quoted from. And that was a part that I think I got goosebumps reading because I yeah. probably six months ago, six to eight months ago, I remember being on a walk with a friend, Emily in the middle of the pandemic, we were walking around her neighborhood and I was just sort of exasperatedly telling her, I'm so frustrated because I feel like I have something to give. Like I'm a person who is very driven. I'm, I'm constantly, I am doing a lot of this experimentation and I feel uh, successful when I try something. My problem just seems to be that I'm not all that compelled by much of what I try that long into it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at nearing 40 years old, I was just going, it's so frustrating to be in the world as someone who feels like you have something to offer. Like I, I know I have talent and skills and something, but I just don't know sort of where to direct that in a way that actually makes me like sort of of best service to yeah. the world. And also, you know, and for me, my parents were, my dad specifically, I think was more concerned about money. And I don't, I think as I've gotten older, I've sort of started to recognize like his need there was just making sure that his daughter was safe, mm -hmm. you know? So mm -hmm. I don't, I don't blame him anymore for that compulsion to be nagging me when I go off on one of my experimental, right. I might not make very much money right. <laughs> sorts of things. Yeah, he's worried about but yeah. yeah, but you know, it's still, it's still a pressure. And I've heard you talk about how working uh, uh, in this way in the world can be seen as really inefficient. Why? And also, I love this comment that you have in, in something, I forget what it was in, but you mentioned how you think we've gone from an industrial economy that really is focused on something like efficiency, right? And I think that's mm -hmm, where we mm -hmm. get a lot of our compulsion toward efficiency. Mm -hmm. and, and then we moved to the knowledge economy and now that we're in the creative economy. So yeah. I think number one, why do you think we value efficiency so much? You know, if you have any commentary beyond just sort of industrial revolution, yeah. God is there. And then I think too, like you talk about sort of sunk cost yeah. bias, I yeah. guess, in one way that like debt even, so like student debt makes us more prone to stick with one particular thing. And so yeah. I think in that way too, being inefficient or being efficient rather is, is sort of forced upon us because there's so much sort of compounding debt 
the, a lot of us experience as well. Yeah. And those, the, what you mentioned about, you know, your father and, and the industrial revolution and so on are, are connected in that the, I think we need to realize that the, what can, for people like, like you and I, it, it can, it can feel, you know, sort of stodgy, I guess, to like pick something and, and stick with it, even though it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sort of intuitively for a certain generation, but, but like for much of the 20th century, the fact is, I think the evidence suggested that specialization was a better idea for a lot of the, the, the 20th century. There were still advantages that accrued to, to people who mm-hmm. were broad, but it, it, it was, you know, we were in a system where you could have a discrete period of training or education in your life. And then, uh, followed by a discrete period of work based on that training period. You didn't have to keep mm-hmm. relearning. People weren't changing jobs as often. Uh, they faced the similar problems more repeatedly. That meant lateral mobility was very uh, limited. And so specialization made a lot of sense. And we're at this period where, you know, whether it's our parents or our grandparents, that we're kind of maybe often getting advice from an era that doesn't really exist anymore. Like it was really, you know, there's this idea that millennials are sort of the, the itinerant job hoppers. And then it accelerated from there. It really started with the late baby boomers. Where they, st- where you know, their young professionalhood coincided with the rise of information technology, which meant suddenly we're shifting from people who can do the same thing over and over to people who can engage in knowledge creation, you know, flexible creative problem solving, lots of human mm. interpersonal relationship stuff, um, mm-hmm. and with that comes huge lateral mobility for people who can do that. Right? They can learn those specific technical skills if they have these other skills, and so partly I think we're getting well-meaning advice from people who grew up in a, in a different era, but also it's intuitive. Like you mentioned the sunk cost fallacy, which is an incredibly powerful cognitive bias. The sunk cost fallacy is, is basically sometimes maybe people have heard the phrase throwing good money after bad. That's like a, a mm. manifestation of the sunk cost fallacy. Basically it means once you've invested anything, whether that's time, whether that's money, whether that's emotion, whatever, in something, in some endeavor, in some financial investment, whatever, you're more likely to put more in even if that that subsequent choice is not one you would have made initially, right? So your decision-making becomes colored by the fact that you've already done some of it. So you say like, well, you know, I don't want to turn back now. Maria Konnikova, one of my favorite writers, who's a, a psychologist, writes in her book about con men, um, writes about how they sort of know intuitively to prey upon this. So they'll make sort of small asks for money and emotions mm. and things like that. And mm-hmm. then you're much more likely to say like, well, you know, I already started down this path to, to do it. And we do the same thing with, with work, right? There's, we, because we've, we've invested time in something, we don't want to turn even though objectively, if it, if it wasn't us involved, like you should, you should give the advice the way that you would give to someone else, right? That, um, that it, it colors our decision-making, just the fact that we've done something in the past. And, and with, with student debt, Right? That's a financial investment where people invest in a certain program of study. And the more that debt is, the more likely they are to continue down that path, even if it's not a good one for them, which I think is a big problem because there's just, and I just added you know, to the afterword of, of the book, which, which you have one of like the first copies, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this research looking at a dozen countries where people were matched for their education, their parents' years of education, their national test scores where those were available. The difference was some got more career-focused education and some got broader general education. And the Mm -hmm. pattern in all but one of the countries was that the people who got the more career-focused education, they're more likely to get hired quickly out of training. They make more money right away, but they end up so much less 
flexible in this changing work world, that their growth rates are slower. And if there's shocks to their industry, they end up out of work much longer. And so they win in the short term, but they lose in the long run. So they're overtaken mm -hmm. by the people who have this broader base. And this pattern shows up all over the place. You know, in a lot of the research that, that I cite in range, to me, like the, the less marketable, but, but, you know, accurate subtitle of the book would have been that like sometimes head starts can actually undermine long-term development where you'll see mm -hmm. this in you know, some of the research I looked at in Europe that contrasted timing of, uh, the, by which people have to pick their specialty in, in college will show that the people that pick earlier, uh, again, they jump out to an income lead. Um, they are more likely to get hired right away, but they end up with less, with worse fits. So their growth rates are slower. And, mm -hmm. and if you look six years or more out, they actually start quitting their career tracks much more often, despite having more disincentive from doing so because they picked before they really knew much about themselves or their options. And so again, it's this win in the short term, lose in the long run, but our intuition is so built for what we see right now. And so built for the idea that I think when we see two people separated by some amount in skill level in earnings, whatever it is, whatever you want to measure, we assume that that's like, even if we know it's not true, our intuition is that those people are on a stable trajectories and they will always be separated by this amount. And it turns out that in all science of human development, it could not be further from the truth. The development is nonlinear, but I think both because of the economy we're coming from, you know, our parents are coming from and our grandparents, and also just because of the way our intuition is set up to be oriented toward head starts and, and short-term improvement, we're fighting both some of our cultural momentum as, as well as our intuition, um, you know, when it comes to sort of plotting these, these more meandering career paths. That said, I'm encouraged by the fact that even despite these cultural forces, that that the successes of people with these diversity of experience are still showing up. It's just there, it's it, it takes time, takes patience, and you know I think because of the cultural messaging, it takes quite a bit of heartache, also. Yeah. So you mentioned match in there, and then also I think speaking of things like intuition and, and evolution and biology and development sorts of things. Uh, you also, I think somewhere talked about how humans are designed, actually designed for late blooming that, uh, more so than other organisms. Yeah. So can you explain, uh, now what match fit is and then more to also about how humans are actually meant to be late blooming? Yeah. So match fit or match quality is a, a term usually used by economists and basically it describes the degree of fit between who you are and what you do, like the degree of fit between your interests and your abilities uh, and the work that you're doing. And this turns out to be quite important for you know, your level of performance, um, but also for your sense of fulfillment. And, and there's you know, pretty um, compelling data that in, in college, for example, the return on investment to someone going through uh, higher education is actually the return on investment to their sampling, that is their ability to try different things and get a better sense of what their, what their match quality should be, where they fit, is higher than the return on the stuff they're actually learning. This was first proposed uh, by a Nobel laureate economist um, and, and you know, later supported by data. And I think that's, that's sort of surprising to hear. Um, it was counterintuitive to me initially uh, it isn't anymore, you know, now that I've spent a lot of time with this data, but uh, our insight into ourselves is constrained by our roster of previous experiences. And given how important it is to try to find a place 
that that fits your interests and abilities. I think when we're forcing people to um, kind of specialize earlier, you know, than than maybe feels natural to them, we're we're making it more likely that you put the wrong person in the wrong place. This is super clear in in sports selection, by the way. So as in sports, mm-hmm. as selection has gotten younger and younger in youth sports, mm-hmm. the rates of transference of people from like youth national to the top youth national teams to the top adult national teams, it's like, it's, it's awful, basically. There's just a brand new study out too recently for my book that showed, it looked at about 6,000, over 6,000 athletes. And it showed that the elites, they do more stuff early on. Their progress is slower early on while they're amassing this like broader range of skills and figuring out where they fit. Uh, and so they tend not to be the youth champions, but then they go on to be the adult champions. And it showed the same exact thing for uh, Nobel laureate scientists, that they progress more slowly early in their career because they're doing more multidisciplinary work. Um, but, you know, obviously they, they leapfrog past their, uh, their, their peers later. Um, in terms of the, and so I think this, this kind of slower progression also dovetails with what you asked about human development, which is we have, there's something called speed of life history that biologists study. And this is basically the rate at which life benchmarks occur, you know, developmental benchmarks. Mm. Mm-hmm. And humans have a very slow speed of life history. Typically, you know, this is a, I'm using a broad brush here, but the the slower the speed of life history, the smarter the the animal. And so humans have a very, very slow development compared to other animals. Some animals that that come out and are like totally ready to do exactly what it is they need to do, like very well adapted for whatever that is, but probably uh-huh. not the type that are doing like higher order thinking. You know what I mean? Like a fly who dies in three days or something. Right. Like <laughs> we just had, we just had, we were ground zero for like cicadas here, the 17 year cicadas that just came out uh-huh. and they come out right away and they're doing their thing. And then they are like, they can't even like, if they get flipped on their back, like they can't even get back over, right? There's like a thing that they are very well programmed for. They do it and then they die very quickly. And so you actually, I think keeping, um, you know, sometimes people look at kids now and say, oh, they're, they're so sort of childish compared to maybe how like some of their forebears were who were already working when they were 12 or 13 or something like that. And that turns mm-hmm. out like not to be good <laughs> for for developing uh, cognitive abilities. So so slow is is a good thing. It's an innate part of human development. And I think it goes longer than we think. So we're often telling people, well, let me let me just give it a name here. So I want to describe the so-called end of history illusion that I talk about a little mm. bit in range, which is this psychological finding that if you ask people if they've changed a lot because of their experiences in the past, everyone says like, oh yeah, I've totally, I've changed a ton. But then if you ask how much you're going to change in the future, say, well, now I'm, you know, now I'm pretty much done. Like now I know who I am. And so we always... We always acknowledge change from experiences in the past, but underestimate future change. We're like these works in progress constantly claiming to be finished. And the fastest time, and this relates to everything, your how you like to spend your time, what you think your best talents are, what you think your weaknesses are, you know, the vision of the world that you want to have, what you value in friends, et cetera, everything. Mm-hmm. And it changes all through life. We always underestimate it. But the most rapid time of change is from about 18 to about your late 20s which is when we're telling people like, what? now you've played around, now you really have to figure it out, right? So you're putting mm-hmm. them in the position of, of choosing things for a person they don't know yet, essentially. There are traces, right? You're not, it changes one piece at a time, but also for a, a world that they don't even 
that they can't envision yet because the work world is changing beneath them while they're changing. So again, this, this mm -hmm. change happens all throughout life, all throughout life. But the most rapid period is the period when we're often telling people like, yeah, now you've, now you've played around, now it's time to figure it out. And I think we should align our talent development systems more realistically with what we know about human development if we want to help get as many people as high match quality as possible. And that would be good for everyone, right? You want efficient mm -hmm. talent markets where people are shuffling to the places where they've learned they can best succeed. And so I think yeah. anything that removes those barriers, whether it's student debt, whether it's attaching healthcare to people's jobs, whether it's just cultural messaging about moving around, anything that infringes on the, the, the freedom of, of that talent market efficiency is, is not good. Yeah. It's almost, it's like the sort of adage about moving slow to go fast or what have you, Totally. where I even, I, I saw somewhere that you said that you can sometimes spend a year reading 10 articles a day, every day before you even start writing a book. And I think a lot of people might look at that as really inefficient. So if they talk to you while you're in the middle of that year, it might appear as though you're not really doing anything, but when not you, um, it will, <laughs> yeah. Um, but then when you go to the right, write the book, you know, I, I, as a writer, you might, uh, contend with this, but I'm guessing that you at least write it a little bit faster than you would have if, if you didn't do that sort of early digging. N not only that, but I, you know, and I used to, so that that's been what I've done for both of my books is I try to read 10 journal articles a day. And, and I don't, if I, you know, I'm not necessarily reading every word. Like if I've realized this isn't a study that is good. I'm then I'm maybe not going to read through the whole method section, whatever, but I try to get through 10 a day for the first year. That's what I've done with both of my books. And I sort of start making a map of topics and their relations and the names of scientists that come up over and over, you know, who I'm going to want to talk to. And uh -huh. at the, for my first book that developed a little bit organically as I was just kind of trying to get my head around, um, the topic, but the second one, it was more systematic. And I, I have, I, I very often, um, kind of chastise myself for this inefficiency, you know, cause I'll follow some paper to another paper and I'll spend a week going down some rabbit hole and come up and be like, how did I ever think this was going to be something I would end up writing about? But I've, I've also realized that the allowance for that inefficiency, for lack of a better term, um, you know, I need a better marketing term, like wide search or something, um, really kind <laughs> Ranging of- Ranging widely perhaps. Yeah. It, it, it is my <laughs> competitive advantage, basically the willingness to mm -hmm. do that. The willingness mm -hmm. to spend that time knowing if there is a way that I could just target the things that are right, I, I haven't figured it out. And so in casting this net, you know, where I sort of connect work from different disciplines, I have to allow, um, you know, a serious measure of inefficiency. And, and I think I've realized that my willingness to allow that is exactly the advantage that allows me to find some of these things that other people have overlooked or not connected, basically. Um, and so mm -hmm. it is inefficient. It, it, it's like all these things, short-term inefficient, long-term, it's, it's the most important thing I do. Mm -hmm. and, and I think another way that you also speak of match fit is a kind of joy, like a fulfillment that we find when we finally like land on something that we'd like to stick with and specialize maybe from there, or, um, see an interesting opportunity at the intersection of all of our interests sort of like you and science and sports writing. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so you, there's sort of this connection between it, inefficiency and joy. If we're going to sort of call match fit a different kind of way of experiencing fulfillment and joy in the world. Yeah. And that, that I think you're, 
describing sort of implicitly some of the Harvard's so-called dark horse project. Um, mm. There was this research on how people find uh, good fit in their work. And, and in this case, a lot of the people studied in this project were financially successful, but the dependent variable was fulfillment. So that was not a requirement. Um, it was, were, were they fulfilled? And the pattern of, you know, the reason it's called the Dark Horse Project, it wasn't called that initially, was it was just looking at how do people find good fit in their work. And it turned out that the large majority, not all of them, there were some people who had followed a linear path. It was just rare. It was the exception, not the norm. Mm -hmm. um, but most said like, oh, well, I did this thing and that didn't really work. And then I tried this other, but that wasn't, so I, you know, zigged and zagged. And so don't tell people to do what I did because like I came out of nowhere. That's, that's why it's called, you know, dark horses phrase for someone who came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And, and often that's what these people would take this approach of sort of short-term pivots saying, here's who I am. Here are my skills and interests today. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to try this one. And maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And they just keep doing that process of triangulation until they, um, you know, until they find a place where they uniquely fit. And, and again, this is, I think this is a lifelong process because also the work world is changing around us. Um, but it was really interesting. I mean, I didn't go into detail about a lot of their careers in range, but there would be like, you know, a guy who worked as um, in, in electrical engineer and what he was really good at was like fixing, like aligning circuitry. And then he did something else that totally different and realized like the part he liked was the aligning. And so he's like, you know what? I, I, I like like aligning things, like in looking at symmetry. And he ended up starting this like incredibly successful antique furniture restoration business because it allowed him to work on like aligning things all, you know, and that's like a super specific, like I never would have guessed thing, but it was by like going through these different experiences and saying, I really didn't like this part of it. And I was bad at this part of it, but I was good at this part of it. And I loved doing this specific part. How can I do more of that? And, mm -hmm. and I think one thing that all the dark horses really have, whether they were the, the smaller number who followed the linear path or not, was they practice so-called self-regulatory learning, which is like whenever they're doing something, they're stopping and reflecting on it and being like, what met my expectations? What didn't? What played to my strengths? What do I need to work on? You know, who do I need to help me do that? Why do I want to do it? They really, lots of metacognition, like thinking about their own thinking and experience. And that turns out to be kind of a hallmark of... Um, you know, people who, who get off performance plateaus, so to speak. And some people do it intuitively, but most don't. Uh, so when I was just like learning about this research, I ended up starting, I asked one of the, uh, the sort of the leading researchers in the world about it. And I ended up keeping sort of a, a journal to make sure that I'm reflecting on everything I'm doing and, and getting the maximum of learning from it. Yeah, that metacognition is so interesting because when you talked about like when you were writing, when you, when you do all that sort of journal searching and then go to write the book, there's this sort of middle ground where you start making like a map mm -hmm. of all of the topics that you want to talk about and who you want to interview for those topics. And I wish you could see to my right. So I think like four or five years ago, I had done this sort of uh, little exercise for myself where I was on, on this huge sheet of paper, put down all of the sort of domains or topic areas I was interested in my life because I was in this moment Total. of like, which one is the one, you know, mm -hmm. I just didn't, I just didn't know. And so I was doing this work of like trying to map it all. And then in it, I also have like all the sort of subtopics, but then there's like quotes connected to mm -hmm. it everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of that same, like, I know if I wanted to write a book, I have all the quotes associated with all the topics oh, nice. that I would want to cool. write, but um, it wasn't until this year I had this sort of profound revelation that went 
wait a second, what I enjoy doing is making the map, uh-huh, uh-huh. which is sort of the aligning. That's a good, right? yeah, it's the, yeah. So it's, it's making the connections. It's not, I, I don't want to find one single thing at the middle of something and yeah, choose it. Yeah. I actually, which is sort of what led to this podcast, right? I was like, you know what I love is just actually talking to people about all the different connections. And then it gives me an excuse to learn all the different things that I really ever want to learn. And I get to talk to fascinating people who are doing intersection, you know, work at those intersections and that sort of thing. I think that was a really beautiful observation. I think you and I are probably very like-minded. I mean, the reason I started my newsletter is, which I'm going to relaunch soon, um, is because I wanted in in the form of things shorter than a book to be able to just be like, oh, connect this one thing to this one other thing and sort of share it. Um, and I just think that's a really important observation you made, that it wasn't like the just looking for the thing you're going to specialize in, but you're like, oh, it's actually mapping these ideas together that, that you really love. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that, that's going to stick in my head. That was, an, I, I appreciate that observation. Mm. Well, I, I think that's real for me too. I started a newsletter in 2019 at first called mixed media and it was, and now called this plus that just to align it with this. But, um, the whole point of that was, I, I think the other thing that, uh, generalist types of people often do, which is sort of, uh, if no one's going to give you permission or is not there isn't a specific field that exists yet for you that you just sort of go, well, I have to find a way to yeah. express what I'm is sort of coming to me. And so I was like, well, I, I'm just going to start a newsletter because I don't like I'm not going to get hired right now, at least by any sort of like scientific journal or something or, you know, some sort of research institution in some in a field that I, that I enjoy in science. And also I'm just too bored to choose one particular science unless it's maybe quantum physics. <laughs> I could probably do that forever if my brain could wrap itself around those things. But uh, it was my way of going, well, I'm just going to combine all these things and sort of, it'll be my little playground and maybe someone will like it. So it was me inventing a way to go like, well, I don't have a way to do this practice. And so this is my practice, which is actually one of the things I was going to ask you, which is, um, how you are maybe intentionally being inefficient these days, or if there are regular practices that you use in order to be intentionally inefficient, maybe other, you know, beyond even your journal practice yeah. of reading several articles a day that help you spur on joy in your own life. Yeah, some of both. So I, I have something I call my, it sounds so silly, the book of small experiments, um, where I kind of force myself, I, I use it the same way that I used, you know, a notebook when I was a grad student in the sciences, sort of, which is, you know, you have some hypothesis that you want to test, you write that down, and then you start thinking of ways that you can test it. And so for me, I'll force myself at least every other month to generate some hypothesis. No, I mean, I generate them much more rapidly, at least every other month to test one, where it'll be like something I want to know about, some career I don't know, some skill I'd like to learn, um, what, whatever it is. And then I put that down and I have to force myself to find a way to test it. Now, this could be very small. Like it could be just talking to someone about some career that I don't know anything about, but that I think is interesting, or it could be more involved, like taking a class. So one of the ones that really helped when I was writing range was I, I, at the time I was working at ProPublica as a more, which is all investigative reporting. I was doing more traditional investigative reporting. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was feeling very stuck in my book writing. I kind of realized in retrospect why that was but so i i decided like i need my stories are all starting to kind of sound the same <laughs> and and writing at the density of a pro publica story a book length would be super exhausting to read so i need to get out of this mm. mode i want to learn some new structural thinking and mm-hmm. because i think structure and writing for me is the biggest challenge 
And so I signed up for, That's why I enjoy being a poet more, but I guess <laughs> real poetry is also like, it has a, it has structure underneath it when you're doing it. But now I look for structure anyway. in like literally everything. But, um, so I signed up for a beginner's online fiction writing class, you know, just thinking that I would find some new ideas for structure, like total beginners. Nobody cares what you've done. Nobody knows who anybody is, any of that stuff. And it was like a revelation for me, particularly when we had to write, we had to do these exercises where you write a, a short story with um, only dialogue and then one with no dialogue whatsoever. And doing that one, which I was much better at, made me realize that I had been out in my book manuscript at the time, I was way overly using quotes because doing the investigative reporting, you want to use quotes as much as you can, like put things, especially, you know, right. your lawyers, like put it in someone else's voice if you can. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so you want people giving firsthand accounts of things in the book. It's exhausting to read that many quotes. And I realized I was using them a lot of times when I didn't quite totally understand something to sort of let the researcher say it themselves, but that's not in service of the reader. And so I went back, I stripped a ton of quotes. It, it helped me pinpoint what I really needed to understand better researchers. I needed to go back to, and it just became a less exhausting read, I think, because the book mm -hmm. has a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of research is covered in it in one way or another. And, and I think it, you know, I was always sort of like walking the line of, will it get too exhausting? And so it was just like getting out of my normal mode of what I was doing in my daily work that sort of flipped a switch that said, oh, like I'm just stuck in autopilot in the kind of writing I'm doing. And so I'll, I'll always force myself to do these experiments. I didn't find what I was thought I was going to. I was like thinking about new structures, which isn't what came out of that class for me, but something else really valuable did. And so I'm always forcing myself to, to take on those, uh, experiments. Um, and, and yeah, I, I really make myself do it and stick to it. And, um, so yeah, my book of small experiments is kind of my, my tool to make sure I'm, I'm being inefficient as if I like really need much help doing that. I mean, for me, like, <laughs> you know like independent, it's great. Algorithms and recommendations are fine online and great and everything like that. But also, you know, bookstores, bookstores and, and libraries are like where I go to find interests I didn't know I had. And so if I go yeah. in and sort of shelf surf and things like that, I'll often come out with something that like ignites an interest that I just didn't, didn't know about. And, and I should say there are a few, I try to keep like a broad, like stream of info in information coming in. So there are things like a few publications that I read every issue is like the New York Review of Books, the London Review of Books, neither of which are really about reviews of books. They're much more like essays prompted by the fact that someone wrote a book and like new scientists, you know, and I'll, I'll go through these all the time, just kind of looking for things that, that spur my curiosity to, to follow up on. Yeah, I love that. I, I do that as well. I feel like reading is really my practice of making sure that information flows so that I have a constant source totally. of possible connections to make. Right. And so a library is just totally one big place to go scan. Totally. Um, okay. Two last things. And uh, one, I want to make sure to get to, because I think it was such an interesting, especially in a conversation about the connections between inefficiency and joy, where you're in conversation with Malcolm Gladwell mm -hmm. and he makes this association because you're talking about sports and he sort of, I think you can see him realize while you're talking and, and speaks this to you that he's realizing that in sports, when you do repetitive tasks, it can more frequently lead to injury. Mm -hmm. And so when you take that idea into the work world or whatever we might be doing, that if we just keep doing the same things over and over again, actually is a, is a sort of injury, but how we refer to burnout, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. kind of the absence of a joy. I think when you're so spent that you can't really experience joy. So I just wanted to say that because I think that's so fascinating. 
um, and to hear you maybe comment on that. But also, I think the last thing is, I know that one of your big inspirations in the world is uh, Francis Hesselblein mm-hmm. or Hesselblein, mm-hmm. uh, the most successful CEO in the history of the Girl Scouts who basically refused to ever plan anything mm-hmm. or ever consider that she actually had a job, even <laughs> though she's still working or was still working beyond a hundred years she's old. She's still working. She's uh, still working. She's 105. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and so also just to hear who currently is someone who's really, uh, sort of lighting you up or is an inspiration that's doing the connection between things that seem uh, unconnected, but are actually relevant to each other. So, the, okay. So the first one about Gladwell and sort of talking about the burnout, I, you know, one thing I go into in, in, um, uh, range at, at some length is, is, and I was acutely aware of this coming from being a writer at sports illustrated that we often anal- use analogies from sports for things in the rest of life. And they're really poor fit actually, <laughs> because sports are incredibly well contained you know, or as the mm. psychologist Robin Hogarth mm-hmm. called a kind learning environment, rules never change, right. patterns repeat, work next year will look like work last year. Mm-hmm. Not like most of the rest of uh, the work world. In fact, Anders Ericsson, the so-called father of the 10,000 hours rule in his book, Peak, writes that, by the way, uh, you know, this sort of strategy only works in certain domains. And, and the exemptions he gives are for like the ones that almost all of us actually spend all of our time in, unless you're like <laughs> a chess player or a golfer. Um, right. And so I think, but in this case, when it comes to some of this sort of protection from injury, I actually think sports is an okay analogy. So that that diversity you referred to, there's a protective effect of diversity in, in physical activities. So a great one, I didn't put this in range, but I spent some time with a physiologist for Cirque du Soleil because they have incredible physiology data. Mm. And they found that they had their performers learn the basics of three other performers uh, skills, not because they were going to perform them, but because they saw this data that suggested that diversifying movement patterns protects from injury. They compared their injury rates to Canadian Gymnastics. It's a Canadian company. And they found it reduced their injury rates by a third, um, wow. just having this building in this movement diversity. And so I think I think there are a couple advantages um, in, in the sports world that are reasonable to analogize for, for, for adding diversity or having a sampling period. One is the more things you try, you get a better sense of uh, where you fit. So that shows up mm-hmm. in sports selection. You build a general broader toolbox of skills that allow you to transfer skills to future tasks better. So it's classic finding breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer, meaning the wider set of problems you faced in training, the better your chance of being able to transfer your skills to new problems later on. Protection from physical injury in sports, this movement diversity. We can speculate about why that is. I would say there's lots of good speculation about how it balances different systems in your body. But the fact is, it appears. We don't know, necessarily know all the reasons, but it is true. And protection from psychological injury, I think, where um, you just, people are, you know, I don't think we were necessarily built to do the same thing over and over and over and over again. You know, people like to quote, <laughs> I often get asked why I didn't include Robert Heinlein's quote that, you know, specialization is for insects, basically. Um, but, but I noticed even when I was talking to, because I, I quote a bunch of people who specialize in an area of research in the book, right. And in having small talk with them after the interviews, they would often express their disappointment at like thinking they went into academia and it would be this like broad ranging life of the mind. And in fact, they, instead they got sort of forced to, forced to specialize. And I think, and you've alluded to this a few times that in some ways we've, we've made people feel bad about curiosity. Like curiosity should be an asset. Curiosity is a gift. 
Uh, Ian Leslie has a book called Curiosity. It's about how it's like a survival um, uh, skill. Uh, and so I think we are, for a variety of reasons, whether it's just changing things up, whether it's lessening the pressure on one single activity, uh, whether it's it's getting broader exposure and new ideas, that this diversification um, has a protective effect, basically, against against psychological injury. And you'll see actually more, even at the elite level in sports now, more like sports psychologists will counsel some of their athletes to have like some interest outside of sports that they mm -hmm. can mm -hmm. put some of their energy in and to for recovery and all those sorts of things. Um, so I think there are these these buckets of of kind of protective effects that diversification have. D Francis, mm -hmm. um, uh, Francis. So you, you, I tell her story at some length and range. Long story short, so she took her first professional job at the age of fifty four, went on to become the CEO of the Girl Scouts, which she saved. And she 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 had one hundred thirty thousand volunteers. Uh, she tripled minority membership. She turned the cookie business into a third of a billion dollars a year, etc. And the way that she sort of went through life was saying, you know, with short-term planning, as she said, I did what was needed at the time, right? We usually think of leaders as people who have these like long-term vision. And I think partly for her, because she was keenly aware of some of her lack of credentials. So like she, when she became CEO of the Girl Scouts in, in her 60s, her predecessors had been like a woman who started the the Coast Guard, Women's Coast Guard Reserve in World War II, a university dean, like these people with in, insane leadership credentials. She had one semester of junior college education and had done a bunch of different volunteering stuff. And so I think she was so keenly aware of like not feeling like she was expected to be some visionary that she was willing to be more honest and say, well, obviously I can't know all the stuff to do. Basically, I'm going to go and I'm going to shake up the org chart so that, so that information gets moving more rapidly through the organization. She, had, she didn't use this terminology, but in research, it's called differentiating the chain of communication from the chain of command because she mm. needed to get all this, this feedback to it. And then I'll react to that. Like I'll, I'll pivot based on the, you know, we want to get communication flowing and I'll pivot based on the feedback that I'm getting very quickly. And that's what she did and, and saved the organization. And it has continued to do that. She tried to retire after the Girl Scouts and that lasted for <laughs> a day. Um, and she now runs a, a leadership institute. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that humility of going I, you know, I, I'm not credentialed, so obviously yeah. I, I need some other input is a little bit, I think, like you said, when you were at sports illustrated, you were like, well, I'm not, I'm not a professional scientist, yeah. obviously. Yeah. So, but like, how can I sort of apply that to this new area? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think one, one important characteristic of good generalists I've come to call it is epistemic humility, right? Is like being, I think that's, I think actually, I think that's an important characteristic of all people because there are a lot of things mm -hmm. that nobody knows well, but, but I think some of these really, really effective generalists like Francis are keenly aware of how they know what they know and what they don't know. And, and that leads them to understand, well, how can I set up systems that support my decision-making and, and get people that are bringing good information in? Because I don't feel like I have to know every, I know I don't know everything. And I don't feel like I have to know everything. You know, so I think sometimes we mm -hmm. see the opposite of that in, in sort of behavior that's incentivized for politicians where it's like acting like they know everything. And so like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the not, not setting up the kind of team of rivals as like Lincoln did that might, might help them make decisions. Mm. Yeah. So, so is there anyone now that's uh, a new example of that that's really inspiring you by mixing uh, maybe across domains or 
however you might call it. I'll tell you someone who I'm obsessed with who is not by by now, they're now active in my life, although no, no longer live, which is I've recently become obsessed with these stories of Jorge Luis Borges. Um, and I've just never, re- every once in a while, you know, I read a lot. I, I probably, I started reading a lot kind of in my late twenties, I would say. So I was sort of late to come to being a voracious reader. Um, and every once in a while, as I read more and more, every once in a while, I wonder like, am I going to encounter someone, a writer again for the first time who just like, you know, bl- like just knocks my socks off with their originality and every, mm-hmm. and you know, if it doesn't come around for a year or two, I'm like, no, I guess I've read widely enough now that maybe I won't have that experience again you know, the first time you come to Don Quixote or whatever it is that, that, that does it for you. And Borges <laughs> mm-hmm. is doing that to me right now. And it's, it's largely short stories. I have to read them all twice because first just to get a sense of what's going on and then really to go through and understand what he's talking about. But they're usually like five pages long, so that's easy to do. And the way I came yeah. to him, to Borges, was through a, a scientific paper uh, that was about the so-called replication crisis. So this is about why I write about this in the book a little bit about how scientists have been, including me when I was a grad student, have been trained poorly for scientific thinking. And so we have a lot of scientific research that turns out not to replicate. Basically, when people are trying to recreate the studies, it turns out they were done poorly. And so a lot of the results are are not accurate. And there's a famous paper called The Garden of Forking Paths by this statistician at Columbia named Andrew Gelman. And what he's talking about is how all these little decisions that researchers make unknowingly when they set up their studies uh, can can lead them to get unreliable results. Mm-hmm. And they don't even think about it, but they have all these, it's, if it's like a garden with forking paths where they're they're making all these choices just by walking, but not realizing it. And I, and I was rereading that paper and like, just to refresh my memory, and I realized the Garden of Forking Paths, he mentions, is the title of a Borges story. And so I go and read the story, and it's it's basically like a lot of his stories are, and you'll totally be, I mean, it, it, interesting, you've expressed interest in quantum physics, like some of his short stories are clearly attempting to make like allegories for thinking about quantum physics. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and this one, the Garden of Forking Paths, is basically like a metaphysical thought experiment, like a lot of his stories are. And this one particularly is about time, uh, time and the possibility of there being multiple universes that are forking in time, essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. And so his stories are really mathematically and scientifically informed in a lot of cases. And I think what they're often doing is trying to put you in the position of a character where it says, let's say this thing is true about the universe. Now I'm going to give you a character to actually like play this out in a more real way in your head so you can think about it. So the most famous one is probably the Library of Babel, where he conceives of the universe as this unending repetitive library and the question of whether there is any sensible material in any of the books or it's just randomness because sometimes you get combinations that make words. It's like, is there order in the universe or not? It's kind of the central question. And so his sort of Wow. That's almost like the sort of existential question. I think that's like, if death didn't ever happen, would life have meaning? There's you, you would, you would love Borges. I'm telling you that's there are. Yeah. It it reminds me of Einstein's dreams. I feel like maybe you, have you read that book? Yeah. 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 So it's a lot like that where it's a thought experiment about what if, what, how would society act if, if we conceived of time differently culturally? I also love, I actually, I think that in this last week I made this connection uh, you know, because I love quantum physics, electrons are really fascinating to me because, you know, they'll hop from one place mm-hmm. to another without traveling the distance between and only really exist if they're observed sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking 
about scientists and how we tend to think of scientists as folks who are these objective thinkers mm. who go in, do an experiment and, you know, the, the X plus Y equals Z sort of thing. But I was sort of thinking about scientists a little like, like their experiments are a little like electrons. They're only, they only exist because they're coming through the eyes of the observer. And because of the observer, they're the, the experiment or the electron is being influenced. Right. So, um, that we just can't really think about science as this, as though it's not influenced by the person, the observer's own values or lenses with which they see the world and, and how that relates to electrons. There's a great paper. I can't remember that. Gosh, I wish I could remember the exact title of it right now, but it's like, ah, this isn't the title, but something like the lie that is the scientific paper or something. And basically it's about how experiments really happen, which is with like a lot of imagination and choice on the part of of the person constructing the experiment, but then you write it in a paper as if it was like this, you know, you were just an observer and all this other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And I think the, I think the, the format of scientific papers is, is good for clarity and certain things like that. But I think it very often obscures the actual like imaginative, creative, often subjective process that actually occurs in, in science. Right. Like journalism. I mean, you know, we have this like obsession with making sure that journalists are objective creatures. But uh, as I'm sure you know, as, as someone who writes uh, journalistically, sometimes that, that, yeah, that's equally as influenced by your own experiences. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, David, I don't know. I, 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 you know, sort of at the beginning of this, I was telling you that in reading range that 12 pages in, I felt so seen. I had cried three times. That's amazing. So yeah. I so I knew I was in for a, a pretty good ride. Uh, and I don't know what you feel like drives your work, but if if the answer, even if you've never articulated it, is to help people feel seen, then I think you're doing your job. I really appreciate that. I had I guess that occurred to me implicitly because of the way it started with realizing what it meant to those Tillman scholars that I was talking to. Um mm -hmm. But I didn't think of it as explicitly until some of the reactions that, that people were getting and some of my own reaction that I didn't, I guess I, I don't know what I'm thinking about stuff until I try to write about it, honestly. Like that's mm. how I understand what I'm thinking. And so it really wasn't until I started putting the information together and writing it that I realized it meant a lot to me personally. <laughs> so that sounds silly. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really gratifying. And someone with your like, you know, I feel like I, I feel like I'm not allowed to use the word range in my own sentences anymore, or it sounds like weird and self-referential because I wanted to say like with your wide ranging, you know, curiosity and interest, but whatever, I'll, I'll use it. Um, to, you know, to hear that it resonated with you that way, um, is just, it's the highest compliment I can think of. So, um, and writing obviously can obviously be very abstract. Like you put something out in the world and it's kind of, you know, you don't know what it's doing. So it's, it's just nice to know when it resonates with someone with a very interesting brain. And uh, that means a lot to me. Mm. Well, that, I mean, that reflection means a lot to me also. And I mean, I think similarly writing is, I had someone say to me, I think writing is how you figure out what you think and know and feel. And that's, and, and, you know, I've heard other things that are sort of like, you write what you most want to learn mm. or, you know, things like that. And I, and I think that's sort of where I come from, but I, I mean the sentiment sincerely and uh, so sincerely actually that when I was conceiving the idea, idea of this podcast, I had a really hard time coming up with a different name that wasn't range. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, should I just ask David to be a co-host? Cause I just don't know, you know, I was just, um, so it describes it so well, which explains why you end up using it so much that it, it maybe feels like a cliche to you, but it's, I think it 
there are so many people who haven't heard it yet. So I think it's, uh, it continues to have the same sort of emotional impact. So thank you for your time today. And thanks for, for all of that synthesizing and scanning and generalizing and all of those things, the, the mapping or aligning or whatever, however we want to refer to it, all of that work that you do in the world. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Wasn't that so great? I'm telling you, don't, don't you feel so seen in the world like I did? Oh, it, it felt like such a joy to have that conversation with David. And um, one thing I was thinking about that didn't come up in our conversation is something else I feel is kind of important to talk about when it comes to holding down a job, which is that not everyone can actually work traditionally, right? There's not just like sort of personality traits like generalists, but people who actually physically, mentally, otherwise can't work in traditional jobs. So neurodivergent folks, chronically ill folks, and disabled folks who can't show up in a lot of ways that traditional work environments ask for. So I feel like this very generalist concept of being able to adapt to your environment in order to string together what works for you is something we also really learn from all of those folks. And I think that's so important to note. But otherwise, you can find David online at davidepstein.com and on Twitter at David Epstein. Links to the show notes from our conversation and everything we talked about are on my site at thisplusthat.com slash episodes under David's specifically. And I would also like to acknowledge that I do these interviews from my home on the native land of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho people. But you can otherwise find me online at thisplusthat.com and thisplusthatpod across Twitter and Instagram. Those are really the only two places I am. And we'll see how how much I'm on them. I'm sort of so-so about social media. We'll figure it out together. Okay. Um, thanks to the team at Upfire Digital for the audio processing. You can find them online at upfiredigital.com. All of my music is by the folks at slip.stream. You can find them online at that same address. And if you're a plus kind of person and you love all of these conversations and this kind of thinking, this cross-disciplinary thinking as much as I do, you can also sign up for my newsletter at thisplusthat.com. In it, you're going to get inside peeks at important connections I'm making at the intersections of other seemingly unconnected ideas, podcast announcements so you never miss a show when it drops, additional commentary and behind the scenes thoughts I love to give from beyond these conversations, plus curated links to my other favorite recent idea mashing people and media. It's also the only place I share recommended reading and listening related to each show and the only place where I'll allow you to reply to me and tell me guest recommendations for who you think I should interview in the future. So lastly, please rate and subscribe. I think you know some other folks who are into this kind of thing because we're a mighty but maybe weird group of people who love making these very odd connections but who are doing really incredible necessary work in the world. So tell your friends about it. And let's all mash some things together. Until next time, this is Brandy. And thanks for listening to This Plus That. Oh, and don't forget, there's a little surprise after this little clip of music. So stay tuned.
right. Um, well, I'm going to let you get on to your next thing. Okay. Thank you for the additional little bit of time. My pleasure. I always build in some buffer because I don't want to like cut anything off. And, and I really appreciate, like I said, it's, I, I have conversations like this for fun, especially when someone's like done their background and it's really interesting too. So it's a pleasure to talk to someone like you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I never thought I would have an excuse to be able to actually one-on-one talk with the people who have written these books that have influenced my life, you know? So it's just a complete, utter pleasure and surprise. And, you know, I, I always thought, well, I'll write about these things and I'll reference them as quotes. But as I'm sure you know, when you're doing the research for something like Range, you actually getting to reach out to these people that have meant a lot to you who are still alive, what, what a gift you know, so totally. It's um, funny. I realized yeah. like becoming a writer was a much better way to satisfy my scientific curiosity than being a scientist, um, where suddenly I could like just drop in on the people who were writing the journal articles that when I was a grad student, you know, I wouldn't have even thought to approach. Um, so yeah, 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 absolutely. It's the, you know, why I think, like you said, like a lot of people wind up in academia and then they go, well, this is sort of limiting. Yeah. So I'm going to invent something else that allows me to sort of branch out of that. Yeah. Yeah. But, well, thank you, David, again.